Greetings, Ski Racing Tribe, and welcome to another edition of Tips and Tales, where our heads are always in World Cup racing, but our ears always to the snow for any and all things alpine. We cover the races, the news, and the newsmakers. I'm Steve Perino. With me is Scott Lyons, back from his life of leisure. You are traveling somewhere. Welcome back to Denver. Thanks. I landed in a blizzard today. It's actually nice and pleasant, surprising, I guess, to see snow. Yeah, because when you left two days ago, I was in shorts and t-shirts in Denver. 70 degrees. Yeah. Good to have winter back. We're going to talk things winter right now. And uh, on the podcast today, first and foremost, we have an interview with the surgeon that did the procedure on one Veronica Vele-Zuzalova. And if you've been following the news the last four and a half months, you would have heard that she ruptured her ACL, I believe it was September 20th. She is going to be back racing on the 28th of January. From this podcast right now, that's one week's time. Four months and one week. And when I caught wind of the fact that she was coming back, I said, I got to find out more from this surgeon. It is a completely new surgery. Uh, it brings two different techniques together. And he says to me, it's essentially, it's experimental. There was no option, but we're going to get more into that fascinating story. And I cannot wait to see what comes of this comeback. We're also going to cover the Olympic selections because at this point, the U.S. team coaches and brass are already discussing who is going to be on that Olympic team. We're not going to find out until Thursday, but we're going to give you the names that we think will be on the team, and we'll cover a little bit of news, and right now we'll get into what's happened as of late. I'm going to kick it over to you for the recap of the women's, what caught your eye. You know, I think the interesting thing that's happening right now, um, we think of, of women's speed as sort of being dominated by Lindsey Vaughn, and what we've seen recently is there's a lot of different names that are popping in there. Um, part of that is to do to the fact that Lindsey is, I think, trying to play it a little bit smarter. And she is, uh, you know, if, if conditions are seem a little risky or tricky, she seems to be taking a dialing it back a little bit. So last week in bad Klein County in the Super G, we saw um, Brignoni win. Federation. Emphasis on bad, like those are some those are some gnarly gnarly conditions. Yeah, and a lot of women seem to actually decide um, that they were going to take it. They weren't going to go full bore down that course. Um, and Brignoni won. Goot was second. Hooter was third. Um, Really good to see Hooter back in, I mean, Goot back in the game. Um, she's starting to show some speed last week. Um, yeah, so Goot um, continued her her run of good skiing this weekend with a win today in the Super G. Um, and that sort of uh, in the middle... We had two downhills, also all these two downhills in the Super G at Cortina. Uh, the first day, Goja won the downhill, but Vaughn and Schifrin were 2-3 on the podium, and he had seven Americans in the top 30. The American speed team uh, loves Cortina, and that seems to come through every year here. They do really well. And then the second day, Lindsay won, uh, Tina Virata was second, and Jackie Wiles was on the podium. Jackie Wiles was awesome. Yeah. In Cortina. It was pretty amazing. She made a big mistake and still ended up on the podium. It seemed like she was going to go off the course. So we, we exchanged a couple of emails. She was telling me that she essentially has been diagnosed with uh, what they think is another tear in her patella. That is what kept her out this summer for three months. And she had a little bit of a, a stinger, I guess you'd call it, in the training run. And those sorts of things hurt a lot. I remember talking to the world championships. I think she just like blown out her shoulder. That was in 2015. Just smiling away up in the start. She was laughing about the fact that she had to have injections for the pain the next day in the downhill. I mean, tough as nails, smiles through it. And I mean, how much do you love the way she skis? Like there, you know, 
as much as I love Goja and the you know the way Goja skis at the limit, Jackie Wiles is cut from that same cloth. Yeah, and I think it's cool that she's on the podium with Lindsey Vaughn because a couple of years ago, Lindsey Vaughn Foundation started um, pro- pro- providing sponsorship money for Jackie. Yeah. So to see her on the podium with Lindsey sort of together is is a cool thing and a good thing. Yeah. That was a great scene to watch Vaughn watching Wiles almost destroy herself as if she was saying to herself, oh, there goes my investment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was, I mean, Jackie Wiles made that that weekend incredibly exciting, along with Vaughn and Schifrin, um, that we've come to expect. But Jackie Wiles is just beginning to surprise us, I think. Yeah, and then today, um, to see Goot back on the top of the podium, today's conditions were a little, I don't know, I, it seemed like a little bit of a crapshoot with the wind game. It was really, really windy uh, for the Super G. They moved the start down. And um, to see Goot win was cool. I, I think some of the other women, I'm not going to mention her names, Lindsey Vaughn might dispute whether or not that's a legit win with the win the way it was. But nonetheless, um, it's nice to see her come back from, you know, almost a year ago, she tore ACL uh, at the World Championships. So it looks like she'd probably be ready to go at the Olympics full bore. Yeah. And, and by the way, during the broadcast, <laughs> It was it was such a whiteout that to me, when Vaughn came down, what I thought I was seeing was just a cloud or fog. And I said that on the air. And within about two minutes, I got a text from Vaughn and it said, that is not fog. That is crazy, crazy wind. And then as, you know, later on the broadcast, you could tell then it was starting to whip up. And I do think that it was a bit of a crapshoot, but I, I agree with you that it was great to see Goot. Wouldn't be the first wind or weather-aided victory we've ever seen in speed, and sometimes, true or not, it gives you confidence, and certainly Lara Goot is worthy of confidence and victory. Yeah, especially coming off her second last week um, in backline care time. I mean, she definitely is showing speed now, um, more consistently. Um Surprised by uh, Schifrin. I mean, all along we kept saying Schifrin's next event that she'll be great in a Super G. She's been great in downhill. Absolutely unbelievable. But then that that Super G run there was, uh, she went off the rails. Maybe for the first time in her life. It was weird to watch that today. It it seemed like, I felt like I was watching a different person um, than I was familiar with. Um, She was definitely punching it to to the, over the limit. Yeah. And red line was achieved yeah. a number of times. Um, and she eventually blew out. I mean, you know, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing for her to really test that upper end. I think she has done what she's done in some of these um, speed events. She's obviously had success. I think she's done it without really pushing the boundaries. So maybe it's good for her to sense where that is and what exactly is happening and um, get a feel for where her red line really might be. I, I, I love watching her ski like that. I know she didn't love performing like that, obviously, but to see her push her limits, and I do wonder, you know, if she can push her limits in Super G and she starts further pushing in GS, boy, she could come even become even more dangerous. That's, to me, the silver lining, but, uh, yeah, it was very – I've never seen that side of Schifrin, so it was, it was interesting from that standpoint. Yeah, and it's – you know, I agree with you. I think there may be – the benefits that we might or she might see from that might be in giant slalom where I feel like she still skis giant slalom. I'm not sure we're seeing her push the limit in giant slalom at all, or even, even sense it. I I feel like she's a lot of times somewhere between 80 and 90% in, in terms of giant slalom. And she maybe hits it every once in a while, but maybe like pushing the limit in downhill and super G will allow her to get a better feel for that speed. We're going to find out pretty quick because yeah. there's one coming up on, on Tuesday. Yep. And she's had skied you know, for a week of speed. Normally she'd be prepping for this, so that'll be interesting. I'm going to switch it over to the men. Um, uh, quickly, we didn't cover last weekend's slalom. And I really thought that Henrik Gustafsson was going to have his day. And it seems to me the closer that Henrik Gustafsson gets to Hirscher, it's only at that moment when we see how fast Hirscher is. Like, you catch him and then he runs away. And that's what happened in Dagen. I mean, he was dominant uh, and I was wrong. And Christofferson, no one was close. Hirscher was unbelievable. Um, but uh, Kitzbühel weekend totally delivered. 
awesome weekend. Uh, I, I thought I think I said last week that I thought the Austrians would sweep the podium in Super G, and pretty much did, except two Norwegians finished in front of them. <laughs> uh, Spindel was great. Um, you know, it was uh, he just has that ability to never make the mistake and it was a, it was a really interesting super g they've never run it off the mouse uh john mcbride the u.s ski team coach i, I think he got a call at nine o'clock in the morning because they were thinking they weren't going to have a race because they couldn't bring the super g down the bottom of the houseberg to the finish line because it was just soft snow and they were going to butcher it for the downhill and so it looked like they were just going to cancel and then suddenly he got a phone call from hannes trinkle you know the course setter he's or the the guy who oversees it, and he says, "Jono, we need you to reset the course." And so one from the Mausafali stopped the Hausberg, and I think that was quite a fire drill. And I think that sort of thing plays right into the cool of the Norwegians in general. Um, and so uh, maybe I shouldn't be surprised that the Austrians didn't sweep and the Norwegians went one too. But the Austrians were three four with uh, Meyer and Reichelt. Uh, but then the downhill, the downhill was awesome. Uh, you know, sometimes Kitzbühel doesn't always live up to the promise, and it's hard to because it's so mythological. Uh, but this time around, it was, it was rough. It was demanding. I think there was a lot of peril in the, uh, in the training runs where guys, you know, it was so fast that the jumps were flying, some of them upwards of 200 feet. <laughs> guys were not happy about it. They made the proper adjustments. It ran you know, beautifully is not the right term. It was beautiful for us watching. Um, it was, you know, I think a lot of guys left there needing dental work, just, you know, rattled their, their fillings out. Um, and then uh, Bayat Foyts, you know, came out of, uh, you know, nowhere because what did he do last week, Scott? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I might have to eat a little crow here on the Bayat Foyts front as I keep calling him fat. Uh, and I mean, he has, I think, been quoted as saying he's no Adonis, and that is true, but he is fast, and he's obviously strong. He is on the podium seemingly every week at this point, either winning or in the top three. Um, he won, obviously, in Bengen, and then, again, he's on the podium in Kitzbühel. Um, he's an impressive skier, and he's defending world champion. I mean, yeah. He's been through a lot. Yeah, yeah. And he's, you know, the infection in the knee, you know, he's kind of running on fumes in terms of his body, what's left in there. And he does a pretty good job of running on fumes. But at the point where he took over the lead, you know, I thought, again, the Austrians were going to sweep. Reichelt was in the lead. Uh, (laughs) But he came down and bumped him off. Incredibly exciting. And then, you know, he's obviously got it wrapped up. And they were watching – Dressen, the German, come down. And as I'm calling the race, the sun comes out. You know, the early split, he's skiing well. The sun's out. And then, like, halfway down the course, he's up by 5,800s. And you're wondering, like, this can't possibly. It's He's actually never made it to the finish line in Kitzbühel. He's only run it once before, didn't get to the finish. Here he is, I think it was, half, more than halfway down, up by six tenths. And you're thinking, this is... There's no way this could possibly happen. But he kept skiing well. But then he was down to, he hits the traverse, and I think he's down to a one-tenth of a second advantage. And the way Foyt skied the traverse, you're like, oh, it was close. It was a great effort by the German. Good job, buddy. You know, you kept us on the edge of our seat for a while. And then he rails the traverse and takes time back on Foyt's. Um I just get chills thinking about it. I mean, one of those great Kitzbühel moments. And, uh, you know, the German team have had injury after injury this year. And uh, and he, he pulled through. Amazing. I loved it. Yeah, it was, I think, one of the more exciting moments we've seen there in, a, in at least a few years. Um, and to see him, he was so pumped up in the finish. <laughs> like, kind of maniacal. Um, and it was really cool to see. Um, and he has been fast this season. You know, there's been a number of races where he's been in there. Yeah. Um, I didn't expect him to win, um, and it certainly was a surprise. But it seems like he's been trending in the right direction, and he sort of chose the best place to trend to the top. Yeah, it was great. Really good timing. Yeah. Good. <laughs> and, and, you know, he definitely had sunshine on his side, but the way he skied that traverse – it's not super sunny in there anyway. It's, it's you know, a lot, most of it, a lot of it's in the shade. Uh, 
So um, uh, you, when you earn it in the last 20 seconds of Kitzbühel, you, you earn the victory, in my mind. I think it was awesome. Uh, little side note on him. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, he has Solden as a headgear sponsor on his helmet. He's German, obviously. That's an Austrian ski resort. Um, he lost his father. I don't know if you recall. It was, I want to say, eight years ago, the tragic uh, uh, cable car accident where uh, a helicopter lost a load and it hit the cable car and everyone in the cable car died. His father was in that cable car. Um, and he later went to Sold and didn't tell him that, or his agent apparently made no connection between him and his father who died in that incident. And still, you know, he got the sponsorship. Um, but uh, obviously it's a, you know, it's, it's a tragic story. But uh, it's uh, in, also an interesting sponsorship. Um, but altogether amazing uh, slalom. Let's switch it over to slalom. Chris Alverson finally won. <laughs> I knew it had to come yeah, at some point. He must have been so happy. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I love I love Hirscher. I mean, he's, he's an incredible winner and he's an incredible loser as well. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, Christofferson put his his stamp down this time. And it was, you know, like, Hirscher didn't ski his best. Uh, you know, he, he talked in between runs. Like, he just wasn't ready for those conditions. Um, and it happens. Boy, we see a lot of soft conditions. And, you know, the, come January, when you go to these lower elevation races, this is not uncommon to have this kind of, like, soft ice. But he wins. Uh, and Hirscher gets second. Um, and now why am I forgetting who was third? I have to. Yeah. Well, Hirscher should have been third. Yeah, Mario Mott. Mario Mott. Not Mario Mott. Uh, Michael Mott did the Bill Buckner. He did the Bill Buckner. Uh, he skied over an into hairpin. And it's not impossible. Uh, he would have challenged for sure. He was skiing the fastest in the first run for sure. He was losing time to Christopherson's pace in the second round, but I don't think that was a done deal. But he made sure it was a done deal when the ball went between his legs there. I mean, yeah. that was heartbreaking for him. Yeah, especially on that hill on mm. home soil on that slalom, which is arguably one of the most prestigious slalom hills in the world. Um, to see that happen, you just don't see it happen very often at the World Cup level. Um, guys make those kind of mistakes. And it's always, no matter who makes it, it happens every once in a while, it's always surprising. Um, I Personally, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more, that we don't see those type of mental errors. I just think there's a lot of races and a lot of potential for it, but um, it is surprising when it happens. And, you know, the other thing I think that, you know, over the course of this discussion that this is an outdoor sport, and we're seeing outdoor conditions really affect some of these races. Mm-hmm. The Super G... Really, I think I agree with you. I remember a couple of years ago talking to the Norwegian broadcasters, and we were asking them, you know, some of their impressions of the racer, and we were asking them, you know, what is it about Svindal that the Norwegians think is so great? And they said he always nails the strategic section. He always nails it. Like, whatever that key point of the race is, he always gets it. Um, he may not have the top speed, but he always makes the perfect turn at the perfect point to win the race. And in a condition where you never run on a hill and the Super G is completely new because of weather conditions, that plays right into his hands. Um, and we're seeing it with the women's race as well. The wind uh, the wind this week and the crazy snow conditions last week in Bad um, it, it It makes our sport interesting, but you have to take advantage of those moments. And that's what's, I think, really cool about uh, Dresden's win is that he, he was handed a little bit of an advantage and he took full advantage of that. Um, and I think the best skiers do that on a consistent basis. No matter what the condition is, they crush it. Okay. I want to switch our attention now back to the surgeon that performed the procedure on Veronica Velez-Zuzalova. And if you haven't heard her name, she's from Slovakia. She's maybe the single slalom skier who prior to the injury could push Michaela... Schifrin's limits. And so to have her back in the fray will be very interesting. And so his name is Dr. Bertrand Sonne, uh, Sonore Cote, 
and he is the go-to surgeon for all the skiers from the French, French Federation. Uh, works out of Lyon, the uh, uh, Centre Orthopédique uh, Santé. I think I'm saying that right. It's actually an accredited uh, FIFA uh, medical center. Uh, he's done 6,000 knee surgeries. Very experienced doctor. And I just want to say up front, I am not a surgeon. And I don't play one on TV. And I'm not going to pretend to know more than I do. I am not endorsing this surgery. But you have to admit that the typical ACL surgery, it's a six-month recovery. Uh, and, and Scott Lyons is going to know that soon enough because he blew out his knee recently uh, and so is waiting on surgery. And you might actually be a candidate for this. Not everybody is. So this is how he explained it to me, and he'll get further into it. Um, but I want to kind of headline it so when he gets into the details, you have a sense of what he's talking about. Two modern procedures he's used in conjunction with each other to do what he calls an experimental. He's done 20 of these surgeries, but never on an elite athlete. Vele Zuzalova is the first one. So the one thing that he does, and you can go on skiracing.com and look at the study, is what he calls an anti-lateral uh, um, ligament repair. And so he uses an allograft, a cadaver. So you haven't heard of this ligament. You're not alone. I'd never heard of it, but it's on the uh, outside of the knee. And essentially, it's a belt. And what the study says is that when you do an ACL reconstruction, if in conjunction with that, you do one of these procedures, the study of 500 knees where this was done, it was, I think, increased... 2.5 to 3.1, depending on the particular procedure, you did uh, less likely for that graft to re-rupture. So that procedure, along with an ACL repair, not a reconstruction, but a repair, and the way, uh, and I'm going to discover uh, describe it in the most layman terms because those are the only ones I understand, but essentially... He uses what he calls a tape. I saw the video. It looks to me more like a rope that attaches to the femur and also attaches to the tibia. And then it's fed through the ruptured ACL. And then that provides, in a sense, a support, a backup. And then the ACL grows over it. And it's said that the ligaments are will grow together more quickly than ligament will grow to bone. You're looking at me kind of cross-eyed. Did that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. Okay. So right now, we're going to introduce Dr. Bertrand Sonore-Cote, and we start the interview with that first phone call that he had with Vele Zuzalova when she was in South America, having just blown out her knee. Veronica called me in the middle of September where she was at, the, at this time in Argentina where she had been training in order to prepare the, the ski season and she told me immediately that she had sustained an ACL injury and she was going to announce a retirement because the Olympics game were too close to allow an appropriate recovery after a standard ACL reconstruction and in fact in 2014 just before Sochi Veronica suffered the same injury on the other knee, and we tried the conservative treatment with brace and physiotherapy. And no surgery, no surgery. No surgery. We we treat her conservatively. Conservatively, we said. So I mean, just the program based on uh, rehabilitation and brace. But unfortunately, this strategy did not need not allow her to return to training, and therefore I proceed to a ACL reconstruction. In fact. Just before the uh, Sochi, during a training, she had a new injury and a couple of tears. So it was a failure of the conservative treatment. So I did uh, ACL reconstruction, classic one, and it took eight months for her to reach the same level. And she perfectly remembered that. That's why she was so sad when she had the ACL rupture on the other side in September, because she knew that she will miss the Olympics. 
And uh, when she told me about the possibility of announcing her retirement, I was so sad. So I immediately recommend her to visit me as soon as possible because I could offer her another possible surgical treatment that will potentially allow a very rapid return to training and competition. And that's what we did. And so, you know, before we get into the details of that, how that procedure works, um, obviously it's it's at least relatively new to my knowledge. So what, if any, risk, as you were talking to there, was there compared to a standard ACL surgery if we talk about the long term and the short term? That's a very good question. And, you know, because uh, I know very well Veronica and uh, she's a very clever girl, when she met me in September, her first question was whether this new procedure was associated with any risk of damaging her knee. And it was a very good question because, you know, Olympic Games were clearly a major goal for Veronica. Also, I perceive that it's important to have a normal life and normal knee after her career. So she was really worried of this question. And I reassured her that the procedure was quite safe because it's not something strange and no artificial ligament, it's just an ACL repair. And I explained to her that the main concern I had at this time was the technique was pretty new and the risk was only to have uh, ACL ruptures. And if it did occur, we could perform an ACL reconstruction, just what I did first before for the other knee. So Veronica, which is a fantastic athlete and an amazing personality, she perfectly understands the procedure and she accepts the challenge and told me no risk, no glory. So it was a nice moment. <laughs> and so now, now I want to get into the details. And what you just told me is that, um, again, you have we're, we're speaking to the layman, which is me, but there's the reconstruction. But what you did was repair the ACL and provide an additional procedure, which is new. So now we're not all doctors out here. So explain it to those of us who didn't get a medical degree, how this works. Uh, we try to make it so clear. Um, first of all, you must understand that the gold standard in 2018 for an ACL ruptures is an ACL reconstruction. It means that everywhere in the world, surgeon replace the ruptured ligament with a tendon graft, which is mostly the patella, quadriceps, or hamstring tendon, collected for the patient, from the patient. So it explains why the recovery is so long, because you have two process, the healing of the graft, which takes at least six months, but also athletes must work very hard to recover the deficit caused by the graft harvest. So, uh, this time for this procedure, I use a combination of two modern procedures very recently described. First, I did an ACL repair, but I combined this repair with an anterolateral ligament reconstruction. Anti anterolateral construction ligament. You know, I think anyone in skiing knows at least five ligaments ACL. MCL, PCL, and patellar tendon. But what you just mentioned is is not something that is common or that I had heard of. That's a very good question. You could you could uh, not uh, in 2013. There were amazing media buzz uh, did by uh, one of my uh, young friend. He's a Belgian surgeon, Stephen Kleiss. and in the media it was said that he describe a new ligament is not really a new ligament but is probably a ligament who was at least forgotten and it could be involved in the stability of the knee so it means for zuzu uh, instead of reconstructing her acl the first step of my procedure was to repair her ligaments the acl repair is a procedure that is known because it was done in the 80s, but it failed to provide good clinical results and was abandoned with arthroscopic ACL reconstruction becoming the standard of care, which is uh, uh, again the case. So, however, a great deal of knowledge has been gained since the 80s and technology and rehabilitation 
have also advanced significantly. In the 80s, all the ACL reconstruction or repair was followed by a cast for six weeks. We do not put a cast after the surgery. So it makes big improvement as well in terms of rehabilitation. And in US, it's uh, funny to know that uh, Dr. Mata Murray from Boston, which is certainly the one who works the most on the healing potential of the ACL. And for several years now, small number of surgeons worldwide perform ACL repair when it's possible. In Europe, the first guy we did is Dr. Makev from Scotland. And uh, you have uh, Dr. Felice in New York or Dr. Daggett in Kansas City with really promising results and most really quick recovery compared to the classic ACL reconstruction. And for now, I would say for the last two years, there is more and more communication in the knee meeting about ACL repair. And as we, we said just before, for uh, Veronica, I also add the anterolateral ligament reconstruction. This ligament is located on the lateral side of the knee. So for, for, uh, for, for the, is it, could we call it the inside of the knee? In other words, uh, if your knees touch together between your legs, we're talking yeah. about the area where your knees touch together. No, it's, it's the opposite side. The so it's outside. lateral side. Okay. Outside, exactly. And uh, uh, we, we, we form this anterolateral reconstruction since man, now five years. And we demonstrated last year in a series of more than 500 patients a three-fold reconstruction in graphic rate with this additional anterolateral reconstruction when compared to an isolated ACL reconstruction. So that I so heard you correctly, three times... Less three rupture rate. Three times less a recurring or, or a rupture rate because at this point you have repaired the ACL. Exactly. Three-fold less rupture rate. And I, I used to say to my patient, is like a secondary belt. So you have the ACL repair or reconstruction and on the lateral side, You've got this belt who protect the ACL. So uh, it was in fact a combination of these two very modern procedures. But uh, we should take care because this was possible only because the type of ACL ruptures that Veronica sustained was amenable to repair. So unfortunately, not all ACL can be repaired because it's typically depend on the type of the ruptures you can observe when you start the surgery. You know, the other question, of course, as you just stated earlier, the ACL reconstruction takes minimum six months to repair. In Veronica's case in the past and in the case of many other skiers, it's really eight months before you're maybe 100%. How is it possible that, uh, I mean, I understand what you're saying about the the support of the additional procedure but how long does it take for these ligaments to in fact repair to once again a hundred percent that the question that we still don't know exactly the, the answer but the fact that uh, the, the, the 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 consideration and the the, the conception we we get is when you repair you could have a ligament to ligament healing we took normally uh, approximately three months. When you do an ACL reconstruction, you have a tendon inside the bone and the healing of a tendon in the bone, it's at least six months. And that, that makes one of the difference. The other difference is because you avoid to uh, harvest a graft tendon, the, 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 the patient, and in this case, Veronica, do not have the classic amazing muscle within that they get after the surgery. And it's very difficult to get this muscle back. It's hours and hours of rehabilitation. And my surprise that after six weeks, the muscle and the quality of the muscle of Veronica was almost normal. And I used to say that for the first time in my experience, is like for me that the knee doesn't understand what's going on. And it was very surprising that the, the, the body, the full body, and particularly the muscle, do not react 
as a normal and a classic ACL reconstruction. Ah, so and so because you're so surprised, it begs the question: Have you done this procedure on other elite athletes? No, I did. <clears throat> I did this procedure for now for the last year for classic uh, uh, sports people, but not for this uh, top level as, as Veronica. And for Veronica, we have no other option. I mean, we know that for the delay uh, for the Olympics, it was too short. So I have not other proposal except the conservative treatment. But we we try the conservative treatments first before and it fails. So Veronica was uh, completely sure that the treatment we did four years ago and we fell was not the good solution. And it was proposed by other team. And that's why she was uh, agree with me to try this new procedure. And, and so far, uh, you sent me some video of her skiing. I talked to her husband and coach who said that she was, I believe, training at three months out. The video you sent me was maybe three and a half months. It's, to my eye, unbelievable where she is right now. Can you tell me, have you had a chance to look inside the knee to get a sense of where the healing is? Uh, the, the very good thing that Veronica did her physiotherapy in our center. So I follow her very closely, I mean, almost every day. And so far, the, her recovery was as expected, and she's already back to ski, as you said, including slalom training for the last uh, two or three weeks. We perform an MRI scan at one month, two months, and three months after the surgery, as well as clinical examination. And believe me, her knee for now is perfectly stable, and the MRI show a very nice healing of her ACL. Um, I have a chance to communicate with uh, Veronica and her husband and her coach almost every day. And uh, yesterday, the coach told me that she's doing at three months and 20 days what she did eight months after her classic ACL reconstruction four years ago, which is really, really, really impressive. But you are more expert than me in ski. But when I watch the, 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 the training she did, it's really unbelievable, as you said. And so uh, has there been a decision as to when she will return to competition? Because I know the goal was to do some racing before the Olympic Games. Uh, the, que the question for her was uh, her ranking uh, in terms of slalom. And I... I, I, I she told me that she, she she do not have too much pressure because her ranking will be nice. Maybe you know. So her ranking will me. stay in the in the top fifteen, I think, which gives her a competitive. Exactly. Yeah. So she she's not upset with that because I think she will keep the, the good position, but she expects to be back. I think uh, for one racing at the end of of the month. Maybe you know that uh, 28 or something like that of January, there is a, a race, I don't know where, but she, she, she expects to participate. Uh, that's, I, I believe it's Lenzer Heidi, but uh, now you're making me look bad because I should know the schedule better. Anyway, the, um, uh, I know you work with other elite athletes. You work with uh, soccer players, uh, I believe maybe some rugby players. What's the future, yeah. do you think, of this, of this procedure? That's, that's a very good question, um, but uh, for, for now, uh, for sure that uh, we, we should uh, remain cautious and see particularly if Veronica Nee will uh, remain solid when she returns to competition. That's one of the issues that we, we still don't know. And uh, especially before proposing this technique for all our patients and all our athletes, it will take years of research again and especially comparative theory to validate it scientifically. I mean, in terms of our medicine, we should evaluate it objectively, our results, uh, before to propose for all patients. But for sure, it would be a huge advancement in our medicine, because if we can propose uh, to the athlete to be back soon or early, 
it would be an amazing impact in terms of sports medicine. Really, for me, interesting conversation and, and such a nice guy. And he wanted to make sure that I got everything right. And you can see he's, he's not trying to say that this thing has been objectively uh, measured and that there's an absolute outcome. They don't know. And obviously, Fele Zuzalova was, you know, it was either that or retire. But, you know, it does beg the question, Ilka Stuich blew out her knee a month later and I don't know that she would have been a candidate. I know nothing about the inside of her knee, but might that skier have been able to come back? And, and you know, just like you've been following, it's like there was so many. If you look at the last year, I'm looking at a list that I have kept up with: um, Lauren Ross, Lara Goot, Marlene Schmotz. I mean, Lindsey Vaughn. So many, not maybe within the last year. Uh, there is uh, Tiana Barrios. Um, and I'm looking at this list. Obviously, you've got Neureuter and Stefan Lewitz. We're not talking about nobodies. Uh, I mean, this is epidemic right now. I mean, not right now. It has been for a long time. This has been a particularly bad year. This, if it does work, and they can, you know, and it's going to be a long while, I think, before we know if this procedure is going to be a go-to procedure, but could be a game changer. Yeah, as I listen to that interview, I think for me, you know, the big takeaway is the thing about ACL injuries is they're really the the repair is that is in place now is super successful. Um, you know, so many racers have had it and come back from it and been almost 100, you know, 100% again. Um, so it's not a question of whether or not the injury can be repaired. It's a question of time. And it's really frustrating, I think, for a lot of athletes how long they have to be out with this particular injury. Um, so if they, that process can be sped up, you know, you see so many athletes. I mean, he addresses it in the interview. Last time Valais was a little bit, uh, hurt her knee, they tried to not do, handle it without surgery, which um, Carl Yonka is trying to do now himself. And I cannot, I don't understand I, I think, I think, I think it should be stated right now that Scott Lyons' Olympics was almost in jeopardy because <laughs> you blew out your knee. Yeah. No, I consider not going to work in Korea. Because I have to have surgery. I blew out my knee second day on the snow this year in late December. Um, and the question was, do I wait till after the Olympics to have the surgery? Do I have it now or right after I had the injury and not really be able to go to the Olympics because I would have probably been on crutches? By the way, just, just in case people don't know, you're not going to race. No. You are the researcher no. for NBC's Alpine venue. I mean, I keep talking about my comeback, but I'm not Olympic ready. Uh <laughs> But for even for me, like just the other day on the plane, I felt like I was kind of getting cocky about my knee. It felt pretty good. And then I was trying to shuffle up the aisle to move out of someone's way, and my foot caught in the carpet in the plane. And I felt like my knee came out of – it probably didn't, but it felt like it came out of socket. And it was like an electric shock shot up my body. And I felt nauseous and was drenched in sweat immediately. And I don't know how these guys are even trying to ski without an ACL. I, I know it's not the same for everyone, and I'm – probably in the lower end of toughness, but uh, I, 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 don't under, I don't understand. I yeah. don't understand how they're trying to do it, but I understand why they're trying to do it. Right. It's super frustrating. And I absolutely understand why Vele Zuzalova would try to do this. Uh, you know, it was obviously going to be her last hurrah. I, well, it, I'm trying to, uh, to get contact with her husband to let me release a video that I have seen of her training. Uh, I sent it to you. Did you see it? Yeah. Impressive. I mean, I, I mean, if you, if, if I, if I'd said to you, you know, this, and this wasn't even, this was a couple weeks ago. So this was her training slalom at three months and two weeks, not wearing a brace. There was no way to know that she had injured her ACL. No. And in all honesty, from an interest standpoint, I think if she is able to return and race at full speed, which it seems just based on the video I was watching that she's on the way. Um, I believe that she's the one true slalom skier who has the top end to really challenge Schifrin at her top end. She has never, she has a, a consistency issue, but I think that top end that she has is closest to Schifrin. Mm -hmm. um, of all the racers, on the, of all the talented slalom skiers that we watch, 
she seems to have. And I think the Schiffer and Kent might feel secretly feel that way themselves. Maybe not even secretly. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, that she is the one who, when she was you know, skiing well a couple of years ago, that they were watching. So... Um, it would be great. This, to see it would be unbelievable. Yeah. It would be unbelievable. Yeah. But just yeah. to see her, just to see her compete at yeah. at, at some level of uh, some, you know, ninety percent of who she was at her best. Yeah. That in and of itself would be amazing. By the way, he also repaired the knee of um, I think it's Pierre Vautier, who won the gold medal in the border cross in Sochi. And uh, he's such a busy man that he actually did not see the performance. So he has cleared his surgical se- schedule for February 14th, also Valentine's Day. That's when she's going to be running slow. All right, now we get into Olympic selections. So every race that counts towards qualifying for the Olympics has taken place. So right now, all the U.S. coaches and the brass, as I said earlier, they are weighing in with their opinions and then going through the objective criteria to put together a team for the Olympics. Now, the question mark, uh, the first one, is the team size. Have you followed this? So that right now, the U.S. team, based on a lot of criteria I'm not going to get into, has a maximum team size of 21. There are a number of nations that aren't going to use all of their allotted team size. Those get thrown back in the kitty and redistributed out to the world. And based on some people's calculations that I've spoken with, the U.S. head coach of the men, Sasha Rierich, he thinks that they might pick up an additional, possibly two more berths. That makes a big difference for the people that are just hoping to get to the Olympics. So... Here's what we know so far. The people objectively that have made it, Schifrin and Vaughn, obviously that's done. Razy Stiegler as the second-ranked American slalom skier on the women's side, she's also in. In giant slalom, we have to go to the second rank because obviously Schifrin's the first rank. It is Megan McJames. Objectively, she is in. On the men's side, objectively, it's Ligeti in giant slalom. It's Bennett. Uh, both in downhill and in combined. It's Goldberg in downhill. Tommy Ford, also in giant slalom. Tommy Biesemeyer in super G. Ryan Cochran Siegel in combined. Andrew Weibrecht in super G. David Chidunsky in slalom. Nolan Casper in slalom. You've got another, a bunch of other women in there that are, have done very well this, uh, at this point in speed. Jackie Wiles. She's going. No question about it. So the women's speed team has, if you look at Lauren Ross, Stacey Cook, Breezy Johnson, Alice McKennis, have all had incredibly good results. I believe the U.S. ski team will send a larger team than they can ski in the downhill. We've seen that in the past. Uh, it's the most competitive team uh, that the U.S. has, and so I think they – I think all of those names that I mentioned, with the exception of Alice Merriweather, who has scored, but not much, I think all nine women who I just mentioned there go. I don't see women that haven't scored on the World Cup going. Um, And so that means that there could be, that's nine women, that means 12 men, again, this is me guessing, possibly 13 men, and so... The people in there that are kind of on the cusp are Mark Engel, who has scored twice in slalom, uh, Tim Jitloff, once in giant slalom, um, and then you've got Wiley Maple. I'm going to let you weigh in, though, that if one of those guys has to get dropped, or let me give it to you, give me the positive spin, why do two of those guys belong there? Um, well, I, Wiley Maple, I think, is a, he seems like an obvious should go to me, um, primarily because he's, he's, he's sort of up and coming. He seems like he's on his way up. Um, I think personally that if someone on the bubble might not or shouldn't go or should be questionable, it's, it's, it's Jitloff. Um, I, I know he's had a, a career, a great career, and he's done a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. but I would prefer to see even like a Mark Engel um, or someone like that go in his place 
just because I would I think that his trajectory over the last couple of years, and I hate to say it, has been going down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we're going to have bubble, if we're going to have a competition over bubble picks, then people who are on their way up and are going to be at the next Olympics and potentially the one, even the one after that should be uh, go ahead of people. Who yeah, and, that, and that's how the criteria is written. It, it's, you know, if you're not there to medal, you're there to gain experience so that the next time around you become a medal contender. And, uh, you know, I love what Jitloff has done. He's like, he's, he's on his own. He lives in Europe. He's doing it in a way that no one's ever done it before. There's a lot about his story that I love, but, I mean, just looking at it, Objectively, though it is a subjective decision, uh, his trajectory is is not that of Wiley Maples or Mark Engel. Wiley Maple, his trajectory. I mean, there's a guy that got booted off the team. He's been injured multiple times. And then Kitzbühel from 67th, 29th in the Super G, and then 45th to 22nd in the downhill. And I don't know if I just didn't notice before, but the guy is a really good skier. Before, it was more this fearless guy that I just thought, you know, that that speaks for a lot in downhill or Kitzbühel. You know, you can make a lot of time without necessarily being the best of the technical skiers. But he he had the full package. And I, I think that – I think this is the year that he makes it back onto the U.S. ski team and, and starts to mount that uh, rise to the top. And I think the men's speed team has, has a future. Yeah, between 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 him and um, Bryce Bennett and, and and Derek Goldberg, those guys, Goldberg and Bennett this year have been consistently pretty fast. Yeah. Goldberg has found the fence a few times along the way, but when he finishes, he seems to be you know consistently top twenty and definitely Bryce. Um, every year he seems to have taken a little step forward. His next step, I think, is can he make can he consistently be in the top yeah. ten? But he's right, you know, consistently top 20. Um, and I think that bodes well. I think, you know, those guys, as we're seeing, I think, in speed, it takes a long time to build up the experience and knowledge and courage and all the things, the components that go into yeah. building a great downhiller. Unless you're dressing, and then you go out the second right. time around, right. boom. And, and you're going to blow my therapist out the window. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, yeah, I, I think um, – I, I'm with you there with uh, with those guys and, and Wiley Maple's been uh, just exciting to watch all around this year. Um, Stephen Nyman, I, I think even if he hadn't gotten the good results, they would have would have taken him. Um, and uh, interesting, I asked him. I said, "You got another Olympics in you after this one?" Thinking of you know, like I know the answer. Right? There's no way. And he told me, he goes, "Well, we just got uh, uh, his girlfriend and the." mother of their child said we just got uh, on the olympic insurance program she said so you can ski as long as you want <laughs> so he said so i got the i got the go ahead i got the uh, the green light and so now that he's fully insured who knows how long he'll go but you know i, I he's gonna keep skiing for sure this yeah. is not his last year that i'm sure of. no but i do think we are now seeing the end of the beginning of the end for this amazing generation of skiers in the United from the United States. Um, Ted is obviously getting older. Lindsay's obviously getting older. Um, uh, Steven is obviously getting older. And I think those guys, we, we, we shouldn't expect to see them at the next Olympics. I mean, maybe someone will be there. Um, and if they are there, maybe they're not skiing at quite the level they are right now. Um, so I think we should take, you know, we should enjoy this, watching these guys uh, as they sort of head off into the sunset. Yeah. Um, because it's been amazing. We've had an amazing run. I, mean, I think that we golden decade of, of alpine skiing for the U.S. For sure. Um, and before that golden decade, medals, we would tend to get medals at the Olympics, but the consistently great skiing that we've seen over the last ten years was not there. Prior to that, for the U.S. ski team, we'd have a great skier here, a base skier there. Um, you know, Bodie's obviously left. Yeah. Um, Julia has left, which we'll touch on in a bit. But um, it's sad to see it. It 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 makes me feel old personally. Um, and it's been a great run. Speaking of sad, that is a great moment to transition into our 
news nuggets, and I have to say, I, I got a little emotional when I saw Julia Mancuso uh, make her final run down. Uh, did you watch her in the uh, in the Super Jewels outfit? I did. It was, yeah, I did too. It was cool. Yeah, and to see and and Vaughn's reaction, and somehow or another, I think, again, I'm reading minds here, but I somehow think that Vaughn saw herself through Mancuso. I mean, these two came up, and they were racing together. From I think Vaughn said age nine. I only saw them the first time competing against each other at age sixteen, and that was that was a heated rivalry. Um, but they certainly learned over the years to coexist, uh, and then to see it culminate like it did in Cortina was, it, it was amazing. But, you know, for me, Julie Mancuso, I've said it a number of times, but I don't think there has ever been anyone in the history of alpine skiing who was so good at the championship events when you contrasted it with an ability to do well at the World Cup level, but she was four times more likely to get a championship medal than she was to stand on a World Cup podium. Uh, it's such an unbelievable rate of, of shining when it matters most. Um, I cannot think of another person that was that good in the middle of February. No, and, you know, I think the other thing that really adds to her legacy and legend is and I, I don't think we realized it until we interviewed her a couple of years ago, is the pain she skied under for a good, maybe all of mm-hmm. the large majority of her career. Um, I think her technique had to be adjusted because of it. I think it affected her on a daily basis. Um, and I think she had a lot of fun in spite of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a lot of the athletes that we see on the World Cup, I think even the great ones, some of the athletes have a lot of fun, but some of the athletes, it seems, almost becomes a joyless drudge. Mm. Um, not all the time, but I think there's an element to that. And and Julia seemed to always somehow take joy from it. She loved Cortina in particular, so I think it was fitting that that's where she ended it. Um, it you know, I remember watching her. She went, you know, free backcountry free skiing in Cortina when they had a powder day a couple of years ago and couldn't train or something. And she loved that place. And she always had that sort of element of, I'm going to kind of do this my way. And I know maybe everybody expects that I'm going to, I think she had the physical skill set to win the overall. She was kind of good in everything. Um, she never did that. She was like in the top three a couple times. But she always had fun. Yeah. And that's cool. Yeah, you know, how do you last 18 years without uh, joy and I, I you know that's that's the we we used to cri- criticize a little bit too for not taking things seriously enough but on the other hand uh, a little bit like Bodie Miller would say you I know mean, if, you, if you don't have if I trained within an inch of my life all the time then I'm not going to have the mental freshness to be as good as I can on race day anyway maybe there's some magic to that also a retirement of Maria Pietile Holmner of Sweden and that coming right on the eve of the Olympic Games which obviously she was trying to make and and couldn't because of uh, just the injuries she sustained and just couldn't make it back. Yeah, and, you know, it was her back has been, I guess, an ongoing issue, which is something I wasn't really aware of. I think we were all kind of wondering, you know, I follow her on social media, and she's been doing a lot of stuff other than ski racing. Some people call that stalking. Oh, well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Hold on. Um, but I, we all, I think, all had questions about whether or not she was retired or had retired. We'd somehow missed it or what was going on exactly. Um, and it's sad to see. I think she came along in a time where her, her skill set, she had a great, she was a really precise technical skier that came along in a time where there wasn't quite as much of that precise technique going on. Um, she was good in both Solomon and GS. She won world championship medal, a silver in giant slalom and a bronze in slalom, which I think speaks to the fact that she could ski well in both tech events. However, she overlapped with some of the most amazing skiers, you know, Tina, Maze, um, Lindsey Vaughn, Michaela Schifrin. Um, and I think skiing sort of took, ski racing took this, women's ski racing in particular, took this step forward during her career that sort of, advanced beyond where she was she sort of seemed like ahead of the pack for a while in terms of her technical acumen 
and then everybody else sort of cottoned past her. Um, and I've seen her in the last few years in a, a number of situations at the finish line, extremely frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, she just seemed like she thought she could go faster, and it wasn't happening. Um, but she had she was an amazing skier. Beautiful, and to beautiful watch. really fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. No matter what speed she was going, she was always beautiful to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you missed Federica Brignone in the start today, and I was a little surprised, I found out after the fact that she suffered the flu, so it remains to be seen how well she'll recover, because at this point there's just one day off before she has to race against uh, race again, again in uh, Kronplatz in her home country. Um, and uh, there was also Max Franz absent for the Austrian team. Had he not been, I have no doubt they would have swept. Um, but Max Franz also with a stomach flu, and so he had to sit out Kispiel, which has to be so painful for an Austrian. Additionally, if you're watching the, the Super G uh, on, on Sunday, uh, which is uh, as of today, it would happen today during this broadcast, um, there was... Uh, the Austrian Nadine Fest, who took that ugly-looking crash, and it, it looked like everything exploded. But uh, it sounds like she has an MCL strain in her right knee and is expected to be sidelined only for a couple of weeks. That was great news. Uh, but there was an Italian, Laura Piravano, uh, who was not so lucky. In fact, uh, she it might behoove her to take a, a visit to Dr. Uh, Sonori uh, Cote, because it's suspected that she has blown out her ACL. So uh, the epidemic continues. And, and the one thing I also wanted to mention, of course, Goja skied out twice in Cortina, always at her limit. Both times, uh, the Dainese airbag deployed. Uh, so... Uh, I, I think that's amazing technology, uh, and I've talked to some people at Dainese, and they've told me about the, the algorithm that goes into getting that thing to deploy at just the right time and not pre-release, in a manner of speaking. Never seen it pre-release. Uh, amazing. Um, and amazing that Goja could take the crash that she did in the last downhill and then come out swinging again in the Super G, only to repeat the process. you got to love her. you got to love that intensity. Um, and Dainese's got to love her because they're getting a lot of information for that algorithm from her. She's a good, she's a good subject. Yeah, one of the best. <laughs> All right, it is time now to get into our picks. We're going to next weekend. You've got a mini Olympics in Lenzerheide where they have Alpine Combine, Slalom, GS, and a Super G. Uh, men go to Garmisch, and they have a downhill and a GS. You start wherever you want. I'm gonna start with no me. way. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start in Lenzerheide with the women. Um, in the Super G, I'm going to pick Lindsey Vaughn, number one, Sofia Goja, number two, Federica Brignoni, number three. Uh, in the combined, I'm going to pick Schifrin, number one, Wendy Holdner, number two, Lindsey Vaughn, number three. Yeah, I, I want to get the Olympic hype going now because there hasn't been enough. I was no. wondering whether she'll compete in that. I know she wants to at the Olympics, but yeah. I'm going to pretend she's going to. She's got to get her Alpine combined on somewhere. Uh, in the GS, I have Brignoni winning, Schifrin second, Worley third. and the Solomon, I have Schifrin winning, Holdner second, Hans Daughter third. Mm-hmm. Um, for the men in Garmisch, I have Spindal winning. I have Bayat Foyts. I'm not going to pick against him anymore in second place. And I have Hannes Reichelt, uh taking the third. Uh, in the GS, I'm going to go Hirscher, Pintero, Christofferson. Got it. All right. Uh, Lenzerheide, super steep. I think Vaughn's incredibly fast right now in Super G. I don't think that's the kind of hill where she can generate that speed. I'm going with the GS types. Brignone, Goja, Goot. Um, Alpine combined, Schifrin, Kisin, and Feyerabend. She's been pretty fast this year, Feyerabend, in both down... Oh, 
Don't look at me like no, that. That's ridiculous. Giant slalom. Uh, Schiffen, Rebensburg, who's been out ill. Um, so, in theory, resting. And Worley, slalom. Um, I'm going with Vele Zuzalova. <laughs> no. Um, but I am looking forward to watching her ski. Schiffen, Holdner, Shield. And then we're going to go all the way over to Germany. Um, I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a German sweep, is my guess. No. Uh, I'm going with Meyer. I think Meyer's shown incredible speed this year. He was a little off at the gliding in Kitzbühel. God, he's got to win one of these. Um, Terrible. It, it is a uh, – this one is a fitness test. I think it's the most underestimated fitness test. And I think for that reason, Alexander Almont Kilda is going to find – he's going to finally find his tempo, followed by Janzert. I have him in front of uh, – of, um, uh, of Svindal. And then in the Giants Psalm, it, it's no way to bet against Hirscher, particularly because he owns the, the maximum uh, margin of victory on that hill of like three plus seconds. Christofferson, and I think, I'm just, maybe it's wishful thinking, but I think Ligeti has had some time to figure things out. If you go onto the FIS website, you'll go and look at the brands and how they they get ranked on how well they're doing. And Head has been off to a slow start with this new generation of giant slalom ski. Rosniel has been incredibly fast. So if you're wondering where the French are, some of the fast French skiers, they are on Head skis. I think Ligeti also, there's just been some testing going on. I think they're going to figure that out. I think it's enough time. And I think with that, Ligeti is going to be third. It seems bold. For this episode of Tips and Tales, and with that, a tip of the hat to our good friend and mentor, the late Gary Black, who is always full of tips and tales, and one of his favorites was no pride in authorship, Perino. So with that, if you have any comments or commentary, please feel free to leave it on the website at skiracing.com. Thanks for joining me, Scott. It's always fun to talk about the only thing I really know anything about.